This morning, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm, I'm sorry, to Isaiah 50. And if you remember last week, we went through verses 1 through 3 at the end. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. And verse 4 begins the third servant song. As I mentioned in the book of Isaiah, there are four passages which are called the four servant songs. These passages are purely messianic. <coughs> We're not going to focus on Judah. We're not going to focus on the nations, although we will see about God's judgment but we're going to focus on Messiah this morning. We're going to focus on Jesus Christ himself. And this morning, the text is going to force us to think about some of the unsearchable attributes of God. We're going to see some things that at first you kind of wonder, how can that be? How does God help God? God is God, right? So we're going to, we're going to try and plunge a little bit the depths of the Trinity. Now, I will tell you, you will quickly exhaust my understanding, right? Because what we're going to try and understand is the unsearchable. We're going to look at what the text says, but there are things about God we must understand that we will never know, right? God is unsearchable. God is God, and we are not. So let's go ahead and let me start off with a quote from one of the commentaries that says this, the Christian faith has come to us in words, not images. I find that passage in the first chapter of the Gospel of St. John, the word became flesh and dwelling among us as full of grace and truth. One of the most beautiful and profound things ever written. If it had come to us in images instead of words, it would not have lived as it has. And you know, he's really right. We live, if we're honest, in a video age, right? Everything we want to do and everything we, we like is all video. If you're going to learn to change a faucet in your house, you're not going to read the instructions. What are you going to do? There you go. You're going to watch some guy teach you how to change a faucet. But what we need to understand is that video does not communicate in the same way words do. God, specific, God could have created video in the time of Moses if he so chose. He did not. He has given us his word in words. And I think that's important because we are going to behold the Messiah in the words written in Isaiah chapter 50. And, and by way of introduction, I just want to point out, we're going we're gonna to see the unsearchable nature of the Trinity. We're going to see the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. Now, there was, a, there was some controversy, some things a while back about, was Jesus always the Son, or did the second person of the Trinity take on that role at his birth? Well, we're going to see Scripture makes clear he was always eternally the Son. Now, let me just read you a quote because this is all uh, relatively complicated stuff. I'm going to read you from MacArthur's uh, Systematic Theology. He says this, 
The full, undiluted, undivided essence of God belongs alike to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God is but one essence, yet he exists in three persons. The three persons are co-equal, but they are still distinct persons. The chief characteristic that distinguishes the persons are wrapped up in the properties suggested by the names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Theologians have labeled these three properties paternity, filiation, and spiration. That such distinctions are vital to our understanding of the Trinity is clear from Scripture. How to explain them remains something of a mystery. In fact, many aspects of these truths remain forever inscrutable, but the basic understanding of the elementary of the eternal relationships within the Trinity represents the best consensus of Christian understanding over the centuries of church history. Now, a little of that sounds theological, but here's the bottom line, right? In these servant songs, including the next one, which we will pick up in chapter 52, we are going to see the Trinity working in a very unique way. And this is, again, Old Testament, right? People think, oh, the Trinity is a New Testament thing. Well, it's not, right? The Trinity is evident throughout the Old Testament. We've seen that already in Isaiah. And we're going to see the fact that the servant, who is who? Jesus Christ. We, you know, he, This is unquestionably, even in the minds of a Jew, these are messianic passages. But we're going to see that the servant fulfills his missions with the help of the Lord, with the help of Yahweh. So here's what now, we're going to start getting into this unscrutable stuff. How does God have to help God? Huh. Well, it's tied to the dual nature of the Messiah, who is both fully God and yet fully man. Right? Let me read you a quote from Ware, Bruce Ware. He says this, What could the Spirit of God contribute to the humanity of Christ? The answer is everything of supernatural power and enablement that he, in his human nature, would lack. The only way to make sense, then, of the fact that Jesus came in the power of the Spirit is to understand that he lived his life fundamentally as a man, and as such he relied on the Spirit to provide the power, grace, knowledge, wisdom, direction, and enablement he needed moment by moment and day by day to fulfill the mission the Father sent him to accomplish. Right? So what we're seeing here, and what we're going to see in this servant song, is how Messiah in his humanity perfectly fulfilled the task that the Father gave him to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is important to understand. Luke 4.14, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. It makes it clear 
that Jesus the man was the perfect spirit-controlled and filled man. Jesus lived a perfect life as the man Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And why is that significant? Because he serves then as a model for how his children are to live their lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Does Jesus have a different spirit in him than you do? No. How many Holy Spirits are there? There's one. Now, when you, when you try and mentally stretch this, you get to a point where you'll be laying under your bed trying to do the Greek alphabet backwards, right? I mean, these things are hard to understand. Where does the humanity and the divinity of Christ cross in his life? Is, did he do that miracle through the power of the Holy Spirit as Jesus the man? Or did he do that miracle as Jesus God? Yeah, that's the Yes. But clearly... And I agree with Ware on this. Clearly, and, and most theologians will, um, where he says, he lived his life fundamentally as a man, and as such he relied on the Spirit to provide the power, grace, knowledge, and all those other things. Jesus was hungry. Jesus got tired. Jesus felt pain. Right? He experienced all those things. And he did, and he lived a perfect life as a man, Christ the man, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we get to the point where we're going to see Yahweh is going to help his servant, how's that going to happen? I mean, think about it. How does Yahweh help God when they're all Trinitarian, equal, exact same essence? It is the Spirit enabling Christ the man. And we're going to see that work its way out. Now, did, did people in the Old Testament, did Isaiah probably understand that? I don't think so. Because we don't see the fullness of the revelation of the nature of Jesus Christ till we get to the New Testament. But it is nonetheless true. And we're going to see the perfect submission of the servant of Yahweh. In his role as the Son, Jesus perfectly submitted to the Father. He was no way inferior to the Father, but willingly submitted himself to the Father's will. Again, this is one of those things, when we think about it, and we really try and meditate and understand all the depths, you'll run against a brick wall because your P-minds won't be able to understand all this. But Jesus, the man, fully submitted to the Father. Jesus, God, in his role as the Son, fully submitted to the will of the Father. Does that make him any less God than the Father? What do you think? What was the answer to that? No, 
He is absolutely equal in essence and in every way to the Father. He is no way inferior to the Father. By the way, who created everything? God did. Did Jesus create everything? Hebrews tells us it did. Did the Father create? Yes, he did. Did the Spirit create? Yes, he did. How did that all work? I have no idea. Right? Like I said, we're looking at things that will stretch our ability to understand the fullness of God, but yet we rejoice in this. It's an ocean we desire to swim in, right? We want to plunge the depths of this to the degree that we can. In John 4, verse 34, Jesus said this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 5, verse 19, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing from himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same manner. Now that passage is incredibly rich. It tells us, first of all, that the Son fully, absolutely submits to whatever the Father gave him to do. And how does he do it? Because he sees the Father doing it. Well, how does he do that? Human. Have you seen the Father personally? Not exactly. I mean, we see what the, the effects of what the Father does. This is Trinitarian stuff here. John 5, verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing from myself. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So in these passages, and by the way, there's plenty more. I could do another 10 to 15 of these. We see that the Son is absolutely completely, joyously committed to the work of the Father and to fulfill the will of the Father. The most obvious, of, well, we'll see it here in a minute. But the most obvious example is where? Gethsemane, right? And by the way, we're also going to see the consequences of disobeying the servant of Yahweh. And we'll see that at the end of it. So let's get into the passage. We're going to only look at, at just a few verses. We're going to look at verses 4 through 11. But the first part of it is found in verses 4 through 9. Let me read it. Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary with, one, with a word. He awakens me in the morning. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Lord Yahweh has opened my ear, and I did not rebel, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not hide my face from dishonor and spitting. Even now, Lord Yahweh helps me. Therefore, I am not dishonored. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I will know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. 
Who has a judgment against me? Let him approach me. Behold, Lord Yahweh helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. A moth will eat them. Whoa. Did you catch that? Did you note what's going on here? First of all, who is the one speaking? Jesus is speaking. The servant is speaking. Messiah is speaking. So let's take this apart. I want to, we're going to spend some time on this. First of all, I want you to notice that the servant listens to God and speaks God's will. But the servant of the Lord, is a, he's a good listener. He had an ear constantly open to God. The one who fears the Lord also listens obediently to the servant. We see that in verse 10. All who seek righteousness and good are good listeners to God and Him alone. Jesus hears the will of Yahweh. Now we know from the New Testament we're told that nobody can understand the spirit of a man except himself, but we have the Holy Spirit so that we can understand, and Jesus the man had the Holy Spirit so that he can understand in a supernatural way the will and desire of the Father. The Father spoke to Jesus, and Jesus listened. The, he listened to the Word. While there's some debate whether the passage, when it talks about every morning he gets up, so there's some indications that that's when visions came to Jesus in the morning. But I don't think that's the point of the passage. Jesus' ministry was fundamentally and completely controlled by the will of God communicated to him in his humanity and his deity, but it's also communicated to him in his humanity. First of all, the word disciple here in this text has the idea of taking up knowledge or beliefs from a teacher. Jesus the man is a disciple of Jesus, the, I mean, God the Father, Yahweh. How does that work? I don't know. But let me give you some verses that help. First of all, it says this in Luke 2.52. And Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, wait a minute. Was Jesus God advancing in anything? I'm sorry, say that again? No. Because Jesus, God, is what? God, He is perfect. Is there anything for Him to advance in? Perfection implies there is no improvement. Does it not? God isn't learning anything. There is nothing He does not already know. Is that true? Does God have to learn about creation? No, God made it all. Right? But it says this in Isaiah 11, the Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. Who's the him? Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear. Wow! Jesus 
will do all that he does by the will and knowledge and understanding of the Father through the Holy Spirit. Psalm 40, I desire, this is a messianic text, I desire to do your will, O my God, your law is written in my inner being. Jesus desires to do the will of the Father. Now let me make it more complicated. These verses you all know, John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14. And John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and what? was God. And it says in verse 14, and that word became flesh because at one point in time that word was not flesh. He is the eternal God, right? From before the creation of the universe. Now, I fully don't understand that. So let me just point out to you something. This book has a divine nature. Do you understand that? There is no other collection of writings in the universe that claim that. When you approach your Bible and you read, do you understand you're beholding God as He revealed Himself? He is the Word. It says the same thing in Revelation. I think it's chapter 19 where He's coming back and His name was the Word of God. John 17, verse 6. So Jesus answered and said to them, My teaching is not mine, but from him who sent me. So what we see here is Yahweh speaks and Jesus listens. Now I have to believe this is mostly referring to the humanity of Jesus, Christ the man. Because Christ God is the word. Right? We see that in Revelation. It makes it very clear. We see it in John 1.1. 1, 1. How does that all work? How in his life did he have to, as it says in Luke, advance in wisdom when in his divinity he is the source of wisdom? How did that work? I have no idea. Right? I mean, we understand the Bible teaches the dual nature of Messiah, but God is beyond our understanding, is he not? We okay with that? I hope so. I hope so. Yes, ma'am. Uh, uh, so in Luke two fifty two, he says that he confirms stature in wisdom. Um, it was Jesus the man that grew in wisdom. That's correct. Okay. Correct, because Jesus God, if he had to grow, guess what? He's not God. Right? God is not growing. God isn't learning. I don't care what Clark Pennock says. Right? God isn't learning. God understands the future actions of, quote, free will people, which Pinnock would disagree with. God has to learn those things. Oh, okay. That's blasphemy. Then I want you to note that the servant spoke the Father's message. Right? Do you see that there? The servant spoke. He says, I have the tongue of disciples. He speaks 
what the Father tells him to. John 3, verse 34, to him who God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. John 14, 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? That's Trinitarian stuff right there, right? That's Trinity. I'm in the Father, Father's in me, we're one essence, we're God. Then he goes on to say, the words that I say to you, I do not speak for myself, but the Father abiding in me does his work. There you go. Is that true? Does the Father do his will and speak through his Son, Jesus the man? Yes, he does. But in the same verse, I and the Father are one. Is that Trinitarian talk right there? Yes, it is. You want evidence that Jesus is fully God, fully man? There it is. Explain it. I can't. Right? Again, I told you, we're going to look and we're going to explore the inscrutable nature of our God. And see, one of the things I love most about our God is He will not fit in my box. Right? So much heresy... And so much false religion comes from people trying to put God in a box that he won't fit in. We make up all these things. Clark Pinnock makes up all this stuff because he wants to put God in a box he can get his arms around. Don't do that. You will never get your arms around God. Stop trying. He is beyond us. And I want you to know that the servant willingly listened to obey. He did not rebel, and he did not turn back. He didn't just listen. He listened with a heart to obey perfectly everything the Father told him. Hebrews 10, verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. It is written of Jesus that he will do God's will. Oh, by the way, where might it be written? I don't know, Isaiah 50? And we've already seen, I mentioned John 4.30 before, Jesus said, my, fill is to do, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. By the way, that his work, we talked earlier and in the past, about the eternal covenant within the Trinity where your salvation was determined before the ages began, right? We see that in places like Titus and Timothy and other places. In Revelation it says, Your name was written in the book of life when? Before the foundation of the world. God hadn't created a star yet. He hasn't created earth. He didn't make any animals. No humans exist. There is no existence apart from God. And God makes a covenant within the Trinity with the Son and with the Holy Spirit that He's going to create a race of these things called people and they will sin against Him and His Son will redeem them and God will give them to the Son as the Bride of Christ. That is a covenant made before eternity began. Amazing. And that, Jesus said, I came to do the will of the Father. What does he mean? 
I came to redeem that people. I am doing what God has sent me to do. The Trinity made a covenant before the foundation of the world. Now I'm fulfilling that. Luke 22, verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And notice in verse 43, And an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. What we see here is Jesus came to do the will of the Father. What was the Father's will? That Jesus would die on the cross and the Father would pour out infinite eternal wrath on His Son to redeem the bride, His people, from their sins. And what I... See, this... If you read this thinking of Christ as a man, you missed the point. Right? Two other guys were nailed to crosses and died the same physical death Jesus did. Although he was beaten mercilessly beforehand, right? They were nailed to a cross. They died with him. The agony of Gethsemane, I don't think, is being nailed to a tree. Although that was horrific. What is the agony of Gethsemane? Jesus knows what's about to happen. Right? And we will never fully understand this. On the cross, God pours out infinite wrath on the infinite being, Christ God, as punishment for my sins, for your sins. And Jesus came to do that, and he did that perfectly. And why in Gethsemane he said, Lord, if there's another way, let's do another way. Because this is now we're back to the incomprehensible. Within the loving relation of the Trinity, the Father, whose God pours his infinite, and we'll never understand how that, what that was, pours out infinite wrath on the Son on the cross. Now I have to believe in some way the Father felt the pain of that too. How did that happen? I don't know. I just know that on the Son, on the cross, His Son, the Messiah, the servant, who came to do the will of the Father, and by the way, He's going to get specific about it in just a moment, bore the wrath of God, and He suffers. Notice verse 6. He suffers according to the will of Yahweh. See it there? I gave my backs to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not hide my face from dishonor and spitting. This is truly amazing. Right? Truly amazing. God, the infinite, perfect, holy, awesome creator, the Jesus of revelation, who's going to come back with a sword and he's going to judge the nations, endured those who struck him, the cheeks of those who plucked out his beard and spit on him, and he did not hide himself from this dishonor. His created beings 
spat in his face. And he is the eternal God. That was the will of the Father. And Jesus submitted perfectly to that will. He did not, it says, he did not waver. He will set his face like flint. You can look at the example in Ezekiel 3, verse 8. Behold, I have made your face as strong as their face, and your forehead as strong as their foreheads. Like diamonds stronger than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or dismayed before them, for they are a rebellious house. Like flint, Jesus set his will to do the will of the Father, and nothing is going to deter him. Now again, we, you guys not hear any of this ever before, right? You've all heard this, right? But we need to understand, first of all, when you hear people say, oh, Christ is the Christ of the New Testament, this is strictly, solely talking about Jesus Christ. He, isn't the God, he is the Christ of the Bible, starting in Genesis 1, and it finishes in Revelation. But then I want you to notice God helps his servant. Do you see that? He helps his servant. We're going to see that several times where it talks about how he helps his servant. How does he do that? Well, first of all, we know from Matthew verse 1 that Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? God did, through the Spirit. Why did God do that? Because in Hebrews, in order to be a sympathetic high priest, he had to be tempted in everything just as we are. So what? So God leads him into the wilderness so that Christ the man, empowered by the Holy Spirit, will be tempted in every way just like you were. Now you go, wait a minute, how does that happen? Right? Well, what does 1 John 2, 15 and 16 say? It says, for all that is in the world, and then it lists three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Do you understand that every sin you commit falls into one of those three categories? Satan only has three arrows, guys. That's it. He's got three. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. That covers everything. Now, there are variants when each of those some people are tempted by food. Some people are tempted by alcohol. Some people are tempted by sex to fulfill the lust of the flesh. But they're all lust of the flesh. And when Satan takes Jesus out into the wilderness, what does he tempt him with? Well, first of all, he says, man, you're hungry. I bet 40 days out here, probably hungry, Jesus. Turn that rock into some bread. Right? What, what was that going after? Lust of the flesh. Right? And then he says, hey, if you're God, here's what you need to do. You want all these people to, to worship you and adore you? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to the temple, you're going to jump off the roof, and then you're going to save yourself. The angels will come and save you. They'll all see it, and they'll all proclaim you as Messiah. Jesus said, no, in Scripture it is written, you shall not test the Lord your God, Right? And then he goes, okay, Jesus, you've come to redeem a world. I'll tell you what, it's my world, which, by the way, the Bible affirms. So he takes them up and he shows them all the kingdoms of the world. Here, I'll give them to you free, no cross. No cross, Jesus, I'll give it to you free right now. Just worship me. Right? 
lust of the eyes, he sees the whole world, it's all his. Just worship Satan. What does Jesus do? Yeah, I don't think so. Right? You and I can never understand how powerful those temptations were. And we can talk about the impeccability of Christ, right? That means he could never have sinned, so was he really tempted? Yes. How do I know that? Because the Spirit, the book says he was tempted. How exactly did that work? I don't know. Right? He was tempted in all ways as we are. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What I want you to know here is through the eternal Spirit, he offered himself without blemish. How do you do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? This is, this is incredible stuff. And then I want you to notice God vindicates his servant. God vindicates his servant. He will not be condemned despite intense opposition. Satan is going to throw everything he has at the Messiah. Yes, sir? A question on uh, Matthew 4, 7. Jesus claiming to be God. Matthew 4, 7. Stand by, boy. You shall not put the Lord you got. What he's saying there is... That is not him proclaiming himself as God, although he does that numerous times. What he's saying is, I'm not going to test God. Right? It is written in Scripture, you're not supposed to do that, and I'm going to be perfectly obedient. That's what he's saying. And let me just know, remember, he listens every time Satan tempts him. What does he do? He answers with, it is written. He listens. He obeys. And he vindicates his servant. Look at verse 8. They will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. It says in verse 8, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? This is Christ the man. Who has a judgment against me? Let him approach me. Lord Yahweh helps me. Who will condemn me? God vindicates his servant. Why? Because his servant was perfectly obedient. I didn't put this in here. A mistake. Write it in there. Remember when Jesus is, is going through and having John baptized and he says, this is my beloved son. What? With whom I'm well pleased. Vindicates him. Isaiah 53. Preview of coming attractions. Okay? He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? That, was, uh, that for the transgression of my people, striking was due to him. So his grave was assigned with wicked men and yet was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
That is true, but what we're going to see at the end of Isaiah 53, what does God do? God vindicates him. He is the one who will have all power. Look at Psalm 22, and you can see the same thing. That is a messianic psalm. It talks about him being poured out like water. Their mouths are wide open. They pierced him. See that there in uh, verse 16? They pierced my hands and feet. Talks about the suffering of the cross. Is Christ in the Old Testament? Yeah. Yes, look at, look at Psalm 22. Yet, all those things are true. Yet, turn to Psalm... Uh, I didn't get any coffee before I started, so... Philippians chapter 2. Let me pick it up in verse 9. You all know that chapter. It's the kenosis. He emptied himself. God became a man. And look what it says in verse 9. Therefore, because he did all that in perfect obedience, including death on a cross, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Will God vindicate His servant? Oh, yeah, I think so. You bet He will. You know, the depth of this is almost incomprehensible. Right? He is going to go from a humble servant. And by the way, we all think of the agony of the cross, right? And, and that's true. It's incomprehensible. But I want you to think about one other thing that we see in Philippians 2, and it talks about here when we talk about the Trinity and the nature of this. In John 17, Jesus says this. He goes, Lord, I want to see the glory. have the glory I had with you before the creation. Lord, that's where I... Let me read it to you. I'm in the process of memorizing it, but obviously I don't have it yet, so we're going to read it. But this is really an important verse because I want you to understand that the agony that Christ went through was more than just the cross. John 17. This isn't in your notes. You can... And he said, Father, the hours come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And I'm in John 17, verse 1. And, um, and he says in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You all read that and go, yeah, okay, keep going. Here's, here's part of the incomprehensible nature of this. Jesus Christ is fully God in His full glory, the creator of everything. Right? You look at all those stars and those nebula and those galaxies, and Jesus spoke and it was. Hebrews tells us everything was created by Him and for Him. Everything. Imagine the power and the glory of all the angels are falling down before Him. Holy, holy, holy. Right? We can't fully comprehend that. In fact, I have trouble comprehending hardly any of it. What does the fully glorified, unrevealed Christ look like? I don't know. I want to see Him. Right? 
One day I will. Right? Even John, who, who was there for the transfiguration, in Revelation chapter 1, gets a glimpse of Jesus in heaven and the Father, and what does he do? Falls down like a dead man. But he was there for the transfiguration. Yeah, well, now he's seeing Christ in his glory. And what we see in John 17 is Jesus says, Father, I want the glory that I had with you before the world was. In other words, we will never comprehend the sacrifice of the eternal God in all His glory sitting in a manger having His diaper changed by a sinful woman. See, we're going to do Christmas, right? It's what, November? I'm thinking, what is today? 19th. A little over a month, right? You're going to sing all those neat Christmas songs? How many of you guys are going to have a little manger scene in your house, right? We do? Come on. You're all going to do that. I know. Right? That should remind you of the infinite sacrifice Christ made for you. Because God in all His glory condescended to become a human in a manger taken care of by a sinful woman. Right? Now, I'm not accusing Mary of being especially sinful, but she's a human, which means what? She sins. And then he goes to the cross, by the way. So, will God vindicate him? Well, let's look at Revelation 5. I'm going to read this passage, starting in verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? Right? That song, Who is Worthy? Right? I don't know who does it, if that's a Getty song or a Grace Music, right? Whatever. I love that song. I love that song. Who is worthy? Well, that's what the angel says. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Then John's speaking. He says, And I was crying greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. And one of the elders, by the way, who do the elders represent? The church. One of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. By the way, I'm going to see it. I'm there. So are you. Right? What is the scroll? What is it? It is the title deed to the earth. It is the title deed to the earth. And it talks about the judgments that God is going to do on the entire earth. 
And who is worthy to have the title deed for the earth? Nobody on heaven and earth. They're looking all over the place, right? Uh, nobody on earth or in heaven or under the earth. Nobody. Nobody. Oh, the Lamb, the Lion of Judah. He is worthy. Does God vindicate His servant? Yeah, I think so. And then I want you to notice the last part of this. Verses 10 and 11. So we see the servant, and the servant is suffering. He, he, he gives us back to those who strike him. He sends his face like flint. He knows he will not be ashamed because he's doing the will of the Father. Now let's go down to verse 10. Let me read verses 10 and 11. Who is among you that fears Yahweh, that listens to the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light. Let him trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who gird yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze. This you have from my hand, you will lie down in torment. This is the gospel appeal. This is the mission of the servant. See, in all of this judgment and all the stuff we've been reading, we're reading about the servant of Yahweh. Now, if you're Isaiah, you may be sitting there going, Lord, I'm not getting it. The servant who's, who's God, but he's going to be beaten and he's going to have stripes on him and all this stuff and they're going to spit on him? What's going on here? Why, God? Why is this all happening? Why would you do that to your servant? Well, here's the answer. Who is it among you that fears Yahweh, that listens to what? The voice of his servant. Later in the verse, let him trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. This is Trinitarian stuff again. See, one of the things that, that I think the LSB has helped me understand as I look at the name Yahweh is Yahweh is a Trinitarian term, right? Yahweh isn't just the Father. Yahweh is the Trinity. He is God in all His magnificence. And if you want to avoid what it says at the end, lie down in torment, you better listen to the words of the servant. Better listen to the words of the servant. So let's take this apart for a few minutes. First of all, I want you to notice that the, the servant offers salvation to all who hear. Right? All who hear. Now, what is, what is uh, Isaiah's ethnic background? Who is Isaiah? He's a Jew. Who's he given his prophecy to? Israel. He is prophesying to Israel, to Judah. Right? 700 B.C. But God reveals to him that this person is going to come, this divine one, this servant of mine who will do my will and accomplish my work perfectly, and he is going to proclaim salvation to anyone who hears. You mean to the Assyrians? Yes. Babylonians? Yes. Americans, yes. People in San Antonio, yes. People in California, yes. 
right? Hey, MacArthur's out there. I got to be careful. I'm going to the Shepherds Conference in March. So the servant. So there's two two points I want you to look at. First of all, the servant offers salvation to all who hear. All who hear, right? Remember the psalm. The servant song starts off with what is the servant doing? He's listening to Yahweh. He's he's a disciple of Yahweh, and he speaks what Yahweh tells him to speak, and that's all he speaks. Right? Jesus says, I say nothing but what the Father has told me. Well, what did he say? Look at John 5.24. You guys know this. How many of you have memorized John 5.24? Repent. Okay? What a great verse. Truly, truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, and Jesus is talking when he says, believes him who sent me. Who's that? Yahweh. Believe what? Believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not commit to judgment, but has passed out of death into life. This verse is one of the most awesome verses in all of Scripture. First of all, what I want you to know is Jesus says, He who hears my words. Can you be saved apart from the gospel? You have to hear it correctly, all of it. You have to hear the gospel. And then you have to believe in the one sent by Yahweh, Jesus Christ. And then I want you to notice what it says. Does he say, and that person will have salvation in the future? No, it doesn't. Here's what it says. And does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What what tense are those words? They're past. He does not come into judgment. He will not and has passed out of death. See, your salvation is already accomplished. And by the way, it says you'll have eternal life. Now you understand that you haven't experienced the fullness of that right now, correct? Would you all agree to that? None of you have experienced the fullness, but you understand that the body will die, but you will not. And you even understand that your body will be resurrected. And you and your body will be put back together and be in heaven with Jesus forever, right? We all understand that, right? Okay? But I want you, let me go back to John 17. Not in your notes. Get this free. Go back to John 17. And I want you to notice. So we say, oh, we're going to have eternal life. We're going to live forever. Is that eternal life? No. It, that's included. But eternal life isn't just endless days. Because let me ask you this. Do those who reject Jesus Christ, will they live forever? Yes, they will. So eternity can't just mean endless days. Because unbelievers are going to have endless days. Theirs will be in torment, we're going to see. But let me show you what Jesus says in verse 3 of John. And this is eternal life. Jesus is going to define the word for us. Are you ready? This is eternal life. Want to know what it is? All right, I'll tell you. 
that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is, what is eternal life? It is an intimate, and later in the same chapter, Jesus is going to explain that, it is an intimate, personal relationship with the Trinity forever. See, it's not just that you're going to live endless days. You're going to live endless days in perfect, intimate fellowship with the Trinity. What's that look like? I have no idea. How is that going to work? I wish I knew. Later in John 17, Jesus says, I and me, you, I and you, you and me, and they and us. What? Did he misspeak? No. Just as there is an intimate relationship with the Trinity that we don't really understand, right? Can you guys explain to me how that inter-Trinitarian relationship is on a day-to-day -day basis? Probably not. But we know it's perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect everything, right? And we're told in John 17 that that's what eternal life is. We will experience that. See, when you go and worship and thank Jesus that he saved you, don't just thank him that you're not going to hell. That's a good deal. Right? Good deal. What's the real issue here is you will spend eternity in intimate, undescribable, incomprehensible fellowship with the Trinity forever. It's all here. John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and anyone who eats of this bread, he will live forever. And also the bread which I give for life is the world in my flesh. Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. He's not talking about lots of cars and stuff. He's talking about a relationship with him. He says this to Israel in Matthew 23, some of the saddest verses. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you did not want it. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now when is Jesus saying those words? They're part of the Olivet Discourse, right? They originally proclaimed, Blessed is Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a messianic thing. But now what are they about to do? In a day, they're going to nail him to a tree and kill him. And Jesus says, Look, you aren't going to see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When you say that, you'll see me again. Oh, by the way, wait till Isaiah 53. But I don't want you to miss this. Look at the end of the passage. You will have from my hand, you will lie down in torment. Those who set the world ablaze, who gird themselves with fire, who walk in the light of their own fire, who do what they want, who live in the fire of their own creation, he says, you will live in torment. And he
he's not talking about for a couple of weeks. He's talking about eternally. Let me just read you Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Now at the time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will stand. Your people, Israel. And there will be a time of distress such as never happened since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to approach an everlasting contempt. Whoa. He's talking about when he raises the Jews, some of them will be raised and they will be covered by the new covenant and they will spend eternity in intimate fellowship with the Trinity and with the church and others, it says, to approach an everlasting contempt. How long is everlasting? It's everlasting. There you go. Let me just warn you. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter through it. For the gate is narrow, and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Right? Few. Many are going to go through the wrong gate. Few are going to find the right gate. All right. Revelation 14, verse 9. Uh, let me, it says, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, these are who reject Messiah. He will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength, in the cup of his rage, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Those who try and tell you there is no hell, there is no torment in hell, need to read Revelation chapter 14. How could it be more clear? Is there any question about that? You don't need to be a Greek scholar to understand that text. So let me briefly talk about some implications. First of all, you need to be amazed at your glorious Savior and King. You need to be amazed. All that stuff you've heard this morning, that is God graciously revealing His nature to you. Why? 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us so that we will behold Him and will become like Him. Isaiah 55 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, we've looked at stuff today that frankly is incomprehensible, is it not? I mean, we understand what the words say. We understand the truth of it, right? I understand that Yahweh through the Spirit helped Jesus the man. Jesus is the perfect example of what a spiritual man looks like. How does that work when he's still fully God and all that? God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts. His ways are higher than my ways. Don't put God in your box. Don't try. Isaiah 48. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. 
And by the way, it says the same thing in Romans 11. Unsearchable are His judgments, unfathomable His ways. I even believe we'll be in heaven for a millennia of millennia. That's a long time. And we still will not fully understand the magnificence of God and His character. We'll understand way more than we do. We'll be in intimate fellowship. We'll see Him face to face. But He'll be God and we'll still be human. Right? And second, now this should be obvious, the servant listened to God, so should we. Right? If the, if the servant thought it was important, maybe we ought to think it's important. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. Psalm 119, I delight in your statutes. Again, John 5, 24, I already did. But in order to be saved, you must, what? Hear my words. You don't listen. Don't hear the words. That everlasting torment we talked about in Revelation 14 is reserved for you. John 12, verse 47, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has one who judges him. The word that I spoke is that will judge him in the last day. Jesus' own words will judge him because you won't listen to his words, therefore his words will condemn you. If you remember, right, in John 6, many of the people turned away and Jesus looks at Peter and goes, hey, you want to leave also? You want to go with all those other disciples who just walked away? And if you remember Peter's answer, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Listen, right, this book, I already told you, is not just a book. This is God revealed. And by the way, you have the Holy Spirit of God who will show you God in the book. Love this book. Listen. Be in this book. And just one other thing that should be obvious, right? Does the servant suffer for God as part of his will? Does he? Yeah, they spit on him, they plucked his beard spat in his face. We're going to see a lot more in Isaiah 53. Well, Jesus said this, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they call the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? Who's he talking about? Who are the slaves of Messiah? That's you. It's me. Jesus said this, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep you also. It says the same thing in John 17. John 17, i got to read it. I have given them your word, Jesus is praying to the Father, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. See, Jesus was not of the world. He was in the world, but he wasn't of the world. We find in John 17 that you are in the world, but you are not of the world. And he says, because of that, they will 
hate you. They will hate you. By the way, there are more martyrs being made now than ever in the history of the world. Right? We read about all the periods under Diocletian and all these other guys. Thousands, millions martyred. So I'll read the book of Revelation. And then the last point briefly is follow the example of the Spirit-filled servant. How did Jesus the man perfectly do the will of the Father? By his own power as a man? How did he do it? By the power of the Holy Spirit within him. Well, guess what? We, we read in John, Luke 4, we already read this, Jesus returned into Galilee in the power of the Spirit. It's just what he said. But in John 3, Jesus says this in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. If you don't have the Spirit, guess what? You are not entering the kingdom of God. Not going to happen. Ephesians 3, that he would give you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. That's Paul's prayer. See, Paul's prayer is that you would be strengthened with eternal power in your inner man through what? The power of the Holy Spirit. Not you! You're going to get your teeth and become stronger. He says, no, that you learn to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Later in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Jesus, how did Jesus, the man, live a perfect life to bring glory and honor to the Father? By the power of the Holy Spirit. How do you live a life? By the way, in Peter, Peter quotes Leviticus where he says, you are to be holy as what? Your heavenly Father is holy. Jesus, and John says, you are to be perfect as what? Your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if we're on our own power, my answer to Jesus is, that's impossible, Jesus. I can't do any of that. But if I'm a spirit-filled man, do I have the same Holy Spirit Jesus did? You sure? Are you absolutely sure? Positive? You bet. There's only one Holy Spirit, folks. And you all have equal measure. You have the whole Holy Spirit. Each of you. Now you say, how does that happen? I don't know. God is omnipresent. God is omnipowerful. He's omnipotent, right? Can God have all of the Spirit in every one of you all at the same time? He does. How does that work? I don't know. I just know it's true. Our God is unsearchable, isn't He? Let's pray. Father, I just come before You and I confess that that sometimes I just feel inadequate before these words. Lord, we want to fully understand all that this means, but Lord, we know that you are unsearchable. But you have given us your word, and what you have revealed is true. And we thank you that your servant was willing to undergo such dishonor, to be spat in the face, be beaten, to be nailed to a tree, and suffer your infinite wrath for us. Lord, we want some Awesome word to thank you. Lord, I'm glad the Holy Spirit intercedes for me because all I can say is thank you, Lord. Thank you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.